Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In March 1942, General Douglas MacArthur arrived in Australia, shrouded in the adventure of his escape from the beleaguered forces on Bataan and Corregidor, and focused on an immediate return to the Philippines. What he found was a harsh reality. There was no significant military force in Australia. The Philippines were doomed. MacArthur was crushed and felt somewhat betrayed by those who led him to believe the forces did exist in Australia. In private, he would seethe. Publicly, he would never let his bitterness show. He was a face of confidence for Australia, but confidence could do little without men and materiel, and the Japanese were relentless in their drive for control of the Pacific. MacArthur's fight for the Philippines was over, but a new one for Australia was just over the horizon. This month's podcast focuses on the Papuan Campaign of 1942-1943. MacArthur fulfilled the role President Roosevelt had in mind for him when he ordered the general out of the Philippines. Both New Zealand and Australia had been clamoring for a show of support ever since Pearl Harbor. They were next on the list for the Japanese onslaught and were receiving very little help from their parent nation, Great Britain then fighting for its life in Europe. MacArthur's arrival ignited the Australian public like perhaps no other American could have. A legendary commander of World War I, a man who had reached the pinnacle of his career as the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, the famous defender of the Philippines, his presence in Australia was electrifying. MacArthur wasted no time establishing a base of support in Australia. Almost immediately, he struck up a relationship of mutual trust with Australian Prime Minister John Curtin. It was an odd mix. Curtin was the liberal leader of the Labour Party, and MacArthur was considered the arch-conservative. But they would use and help each other to solidify their own positions, defend Australia, and project power outside the continent. Along with Curtin's Secretary of the Department of Defense, Frederick Shedden, the three were fused in purpose. They would see it through together. Allied strategy was focused on winning the war in Europe first, while maintaining the strategic defensive in the Pacific. It took a month after MacArthur's arrival on the continent for the Joint Chiefs in Washington to finally create a command setup in the Pacific. There was to be no overall commander. Lines were drawn separating areas labeled the Central and Southwest Pacific. Admiral Chester Nimitz took command of the Central and Southern Pacific, and MacArthur was given the Southwest Pacific, which included Australia, New Guinea, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Priority for supplies went to Europe, then the Central Pacific. MacArthur's theater was last on the line for supplies, personnel, airplanes, etc. There were many in the War Department who felt the general would not be going anywhere out of Australia. At the outset of the war, Australia had been envisioned as nothing more than an air base. Upon his arrival, MacArthur found there were only service troops, a few anti-aircraft units, and Air Corps personnel. Combat troops were almost non-existent. Australian troops were overseas, most of them in North Africa fighting with the British or surrendered at Singapore. Their 6th and 7th Divisions were due to be released from Africa and sent home, and the U.S. 32nd and 41st Divisions were en route, but they would not arrive until May. There were a few hundred aircraft in Australia, many of them flown by the worn-out veterans that had been chased out of the Philippines and then Java, 
The problem was that most of the aircraft were grounded due to lack of parts, servicing, and the Air Corps organization as a whole. MacArthur's role was to maintain the strategic defensive, yet he had very little to maintain it with, and the Japanese were still coming, having taken the Australian governmental seat in Leh, Papua New Guinea, in early March. The general staff came with him in the escape from Corregidor, but a new command set up for the southwest Pacific area was required. As he was now in charge of an Allied command, MacArthur was advised to integrate his command with the Australian personnel. He did select Australian General Thomas Blamey, fresh from the campaign with the British in North Africa, as Allied Land Forces commander, but not many Australians ended up in headquarters. Many historians have surmised that MacArthur wanted to maintain separate American and Australian commands, knowing as the war progressed the Americans would carry the bulk of the weight of future campaigns. The truth is known only to MacArthur, but insight into his mind can be gained from a comment he made to his first corps commander, Lieutenant General Robert L. Eichelberger. Introduce yourself to the Australians, and then have nothing further to do with them. Knowing he had nothing to fight with, it took no time before MacArthur was bombarding U.S. Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall and the War Department for every man, plane, ship, and weapon he could get. His messages were filled with all the drama he could muster. The Pacific was the most important theater. Destiny was always in the balance. Failure to support him would have the direst of consequences. His messages were always most cordial, but they were incessant and annoying to the very patient Marshall. MacArthur could be a nuisance, but a soldier in a theater of operations wants to know his commander is looking at a square globe. The general also got under the skin of the Navy. The Army-Navy rivalry didn't end just because the United States was now at war. Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, had received an earful about MacArthur from Asiatic Fleet Commander Admiral Thomas Hart. Hart commanded the naval forces in the Philippines when the war began. Hart and MacArthur didn't get along very well during the pre-war years, and the Admiral's tales of the Philippines fueled King's vehement contempt of MacArthur. Secretary of War Henry Stimson said it was somewhat childish the way King and the Navy acted in Washington conferences when the subject of MacArthur came up. One of the main reasons a divided command was established was that there was no way King was going to give control of his aircraft carriers to Douglas MacArthur and MacArthur was senior to all Navy officers, so the command was never unified. It is ironic, however, that despite their mutual distrust, it was the voices of King and MacArthur together that altered the Europe-first strategy and gained support for a limited offensive in the Pacific during the summer of 1942. In late spring 1942, Japan's campaign in the Philippines was over, and the Empire looked to consolidate its hold on the Pacific with new offensives into the Central and Southwest Pacific. The Navy, under the leadership of Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, was looking east to Midway and the Hawaiian Islands once again. The Army was looking to New Guinea and the Solomon Islands to effectively isolate and neutralize Australia. Thanks to naval codebreakers, the Japanese were thwarted in their offensives at the Battles of the Coral Sea and Midway in May and June with devastating losses. MacArthur immediately called for a thrust at the Japanese bastion of Rabaul, asking for aircraft carriers and amphibious troops to make the move. It was a delusional idea, but Admiral King and the Joint Chiefs were also thinking of grasping this opportunity to make an offensive move. In early July, the Joint Chiefs issued a three-task plan for the seizure of the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea with the eventual goal of driving on Rabaul. Nimitz's Central and South Pacific forces focused on the seizure of Guadalcanal, and MacArthur's Southwest Pacific forces were to secure Papua New Guinea. 
Though MacArthur was assured command of the seizure of Papua in Task 2, MacArthur saw it as a power grab by the Navy to take control of the Army. General Marshall, however, calmed the general by assuring him he had his full support in preventing this, and he did. MacArthur believed New Guinea was the key to defending Australia. In his first conference as the Southwest Pacific Commander in April, he surprised everyone by announcing his plans to develop bases in New Guinea to confront the Japanese. Port Moresby, the southern port city of Papua, and Milne Bay, the southeast tip of New Guinea, were chosen as the strategic sites to build airfields within reach of hitting Japanese targets. Engineers were already there laying out the airfields by July, and some air units were operating out of Port Moresby. But few combat troops other than Australian militia and Papuan constabulary were present. A build-up in New Guinea was hampered by logistical lifelines that were measured by the thousands of miles, and there was little shipping to rapidly bring men and material forward. Nevertheless, on July 13th, MacArthur issued Operation Providence, outlining the plan of establishing Allied forces at Buna on the north coast of Papua, across the 14,000-foot Owen Stanley Mountains from Port Moresby. It was too late. Their losses at Coral Sea and Midway did not deter the Japanese drive to control the Solomons in New Guinea. On 21 July, the Japanese landed on Papua's north coast. Whether the Australians and Americans were ready for major operations or not, the fight was on. The Japanese landing raised the alarm at Swapa GHQ, but MacArthur made a strategic mistake in his assessment of Japanese intentions. Intelligence dramatically underestimated the size of the Japanese landing force. Believing the Japanese landed engineers to expand and improve the airfield at Buna, the general thought they could be handled by the Australian militia and Papuan constabulary then operating north of the Owen Stanleys. MacArthur did not believe the Japanese would attempt an overland drive at Moresby. A Japanese force would have to cross the mountains over the Kokoda Trail, a thin path that crossed from the coastal area up 7,000 feet to a five-mile gap leading to the other side and the 7,000 drop down to Port Moresby. It was a morass of jungle in which any force would have to carry everything on their backs. The Japanese were there to work on the airfield at Buna, but the overland trek was their main purpose. The small force that came ashore in late July was only the beginning, and by mid-August, thousands of Japanese engineers and infantry troops under Colonel Yosuke Yokoyama were ashore. They were the first elements of Major General Domitaro Hori's South Seas Detachment. The plan was to make a drive over the Kokoda Trail, while another invasion force was landed at Milne Bay within a few weeks. Together, the two forces would create a pincer on Port Moresby. Yokoyama's men immediately began driving the smaller, ill-equipped Australian force back over the Kokoda Trail. It was now a race. Could MacArthur get enough troops into Papua to prevent the capture of Port Moresby? Should the base fall, the Allies might be stuck in Australia for a very long time. On more than one occasion, MacArthur issued the phrase, Must I always lead a forlorn hope? It was fortunate for MacArthur that at this time, his new air commander, Major General George C. Kenney, arrived. MacArthur had no confidence in his former air chief, Lieutenant General George C. Brett, who he felt had done nothing but let him down. Kinney, however, was a breath of fresh air. He immediately got rid of commanders that weren't performing, brought all supply and repair facilities north, and got bombers in the air in numbers never seen before in Swapa. Of a genial personality and filled with ideas on air power, he was a shot in the arm to the tired, stressed MacArthur. Kenny became a military comrade MacArthur could rely on and bounce ideas off. The general needed one. Things were only getting worse. While Australian militia and Papuan constabulary troops fought a delaying action, 
Task 1 was initiated in the Solomon Islands, the seizure of Guadalcanal. Though the landing of the 1st Marine Division went off well, soon after, the U.S. Navy suffered a crushing defeat at the Battle of Savo Island. Japan was throwing its full weight at Guadalcanal. If they controlled the island and its airfield, they could effectively cut off Australia. For the next few months, while MacArthur sought to take the north coast of Papua, the Navy was in a death struggle on land, air, and sea for the canal. The Guadalcanal campaign would siphon off MacArthur's small naval contingent, fighter planes, bombers, and resources that he needed in Papua. He made it well known in his message traffic with Marshall and the War Department that weakening his forces was threatening his position, but he acceded to all the wishes of the Navy. He had to. But he also knew that if the Navy was defeated on Guadalcanal, the full weight of Japan would be on him in Papua. MacArthur recognized early on the Pacific was a naval war. Water was the highway. He grudgingly gave his full support because he understood the threat and the necessity of naval cooperation in his future campaigns. With the Navy now heavily engaged in the fight for Guadalcanal, Papua was wide open for a seaborne invasion by the Japanese. By late August, the Japanese had landed over 13,000 troops in Buna, Gona, Sanananda area of the north coast, and a large proportion of them were now moving over the Kokoda Trail under the direct command of Major General Horry himself. With every available transport, two brigades of the Australian 7th Division, recently returned from North Africa, were pushed north into Port Moresby and Milne Bay. It was not a moment too soon, for on August 25th, the second phase of the Japanese pincer of Port Moresby was initiated as the first of 1,800 troops went ashore at Milne Bay. Within two weeks, Australian Major General Cyril Clouds and his Australians destroyed the Japanese, forcing the remnants of the landing force to withdraw. Milne Bay was saved and soon became a major air base that aided Kenny's drive to gain air supremacy over Papua. MacArthur was not pleased. Klaus' forces were double the size of the Japanese. MacArthur complained of the slowness of Klaus's actions. In a message to General Marshall, he said, Don't let the Australians' performance at Milne Bay be the measure. They aren't that good. Was MacArthur just saying that to press the need for more American troops? It didn't make sense. The Australians had given the Japanese their first taste of defeat in the Pacific War, yet the Supreme Commander was mad. The Japanese were repulsed at Milne Bay, but Horry's forces had reached the outskirts of Port Moresby. The situation was tense, and MacArthur ordered Blamey forward to take personal command. Blamey arrived, got in a fight with Major General Rao, commander of the New Guinea force, and summarily relieved him, replacing him with the top-notch commander, Lieutenant General Edmund Herring. It is ironic that Rao's relief coincided with the end of Horry's drive on Port Moresby. The Japanese command at Rabao was putting everything into Guadalcanal, and Hori was ordered back to the north coast to wait for another opportunity at Port Moresby once the campaign on Guadalcanal was cleaned up. The Australians again went back over the Kokoda Trail as Hori fought a brilliant delaying action with his worn-out troops. Port Moresby, like Milne Bay, was saved and never threatened again. MacArthur was ready to drive on the north coast, and now, finally, American forces were going to be thrown into the fray. As the Australians again pushed north, driving Horry's malnourished but still deadly force before them, regiments of the U.S. 32nd Infantry Division began arriving in Port Moresby. General Kinney, ever the innovator, convinced MacArthur to let him fly a regiment up to Port Moresby from Australia. Nothing like that had ever been attempted before in warfare, and many in GHQ were skeptical it could be done. But MacArthur liked to think boldly. Kenny was good to his word, and American forces began arriving in New Guinea in increasing numbers. In their minds, the Americans were going to cross the mountains with the Australians and show them how it was done. 
but they were completely unprepared for the reality of war in Papua. The jungle and disease shredded their overconfidence. All the while, MacArthur was behind them, urging them on, Move! 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 Again, many historians criticized MacArthur as being oblivious to conditions at the front. Fighting a war was one thing, but doing it in jungle terrain that ranged from mountainous crags to the disease-infested swamps of the coastal area was another. The jungle took no side. It was everyone's enemy. The truth was that MacArthur did know the conditions. But to a man schooled in military history, were the conditions any worse than a thousand campaigns in the past? Many an Australian and American officer, some generals, meant the end of their careers in Papua, and MacArthur and Land Forces Commander Blamey acted in complete accord when they got rid of someone. Most often, perceived failures were because of conditions and the lack of proper equipment and supply to get the job done. MacArthur had made up his mind, though. The Southwest Pacific area was going to have to fight this new jungle war on bare bones. No help was coming from the Navy or Washington. The campaign was going to come down to leadership and will. Leadership was the key, and anyone who didn't live up to expectations was soon gone. As a leader, MacArthur moved his headquarters to Port Moresby, but he never went to the front. By mid-November, the Allies pushed the Japanese back to the coastal hamlets of Buna, Gona, and Sanananda, and the campaign became a stalemate. The Japanese had been planning on just this scenario. They commanded the high, dry ground with prepared bunkers, rifle pits, interior lines, and prepared fields of fire. They kept the Americans and Australians confined to the swamps, where they succumbed to malaria by the hundreds. Hampered by immense logistical difficulties, Allied troops had little of what they needed. Food, ammunition, heavy equipment, and artillery to confront the Japanese bunkers. The town of Gona did fall to the Australians after a hard fight, but a stalemate ensued, a stalemate that enraged MacArthur, who was still being fed intelligence that the Japanese were starving, under strength, and soon to fall. Most of all, he was enraged at the reports of Americans throwing away their weapons and running. It was a stinging rebuke when General Blamey told MacArthur he would rather have fresh Australian than American troops, knowing the former would fight. Blamey, on the other hand, reveled in being able to counter all the slights his Australians received from the Americans, and there had been many. In MacArthur's mind, more commanders had to go, and he called for First Corps Commander Lieutenant General Robert L. Eicherberger to go forward to Buna and take command with the order, Take Buna, or don't come back alive. Eichelberger went forward and surmised, like MacArthur, that leadership was lacking. He sacked the 32nd Division commander, Major General Edward Harding, and many of his regimental commanders. It was felt that Harding just couldn't get his men to move. There was some truth to that. But it wasn't until after Harding was gone that artillery and tanks began arriving. The overall situation with supply improved dramatically, and air supremacy was firmly established. The Allies were learning and getting better at the jungle war. It took another month, but by early January, Eichelberger was able to announce that Buna had fallen. After a bitter fight, Sanananda fell to a joint Australian-U.S. drive a few weeks later. The Papuan campaign was over. The Papuan victory was one of the most costly of MacArthur's campaigns in the Southwest Pacific, and casualty rates exceeded those on Guadalcanal. The general made mistakes, ruffled feathers with Washington, the Navy, and his Australian allies, but he emerged victorious and ready to lead the next phase of the drive on Rabaul. The Australians and Americans had been unprepared, but they learned fast how to fight this new jungle war. In his statement of victory, MacArthur declared, No more Bunas, and there would not be. 
Now that he had the coast, engineers began a campaign building air bases and moving everything forward from Australia. The campaigns of bypassing were about to begin. Cover the limited amphibious leap with land-based air power, bounce around Japanese concentrations, and grab new airfields. The first step in the return to the Philippines was complete. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh, <laughs>